Hi, everyone, and welcome back to episode 10. Brittany, can you believe we've hit double digits? No, but this is so exciting, and we want to thank everyone who has listened to us the past 10 episodes and for making our podcast a reality. It's been such an honor for Chelsea and I to share these stories with you and to bring more stories of Indigenous men and women forward. And we hope you'll continue listening, and if there's anything you would like to hear or any feedback you have, just please reach out to us um, on social media, on Facebook or Instagram, even Twitter. We'd love to chat with you all. So definitely. So today we will continue our story on the Highway of Tears. Last week we discussed the story of Delphine Nickel and some of the reasons why so many folks hitchhike along the Highway 16. And there are so many stories about the indigenous women who go missing or who are found murdered on the Highway of Tears that we could dedicate a whole entire podcast to just telling those stories. And today we'll share just a few more. This is the Red Justice Project. As a reminder, Highway 16 covers a vast part of British Columbia. We're talking about an endless stretch of highway that's flicked by small indigenous communities, but for the most part, it really traverses just thick evergreen forests that are so dense. If you're looking for someone, it would be almost impossible to find. The landscape is as beautiful as it is tragic. As Brittany mentioned, we covered the story of Delphine Nickel last week. She disappeared in 1990, and since then, there have been several more instances of young women and girls going missing. One of those girls was Jessica Patrick, who was just 18 years old in 2018 when she went missing from along the Highway of Tears near Smithers, British Columbia. And Brittany, do you want to kind of give details about her? Sure. So Jessica Patrick was an 18-year-old woman and a member of the Lake Babine Nation. Her family described her as being really sweet, and her sister-in-law, Shelby, said that she was pretty sunshiny and she was the kindest person that I could ever have in my daughter's life. Jessica was passionate about makeup and was pretty active on social media with family and friends. Her cousin, Jackie, described her as bubbly and goofy. And she was someone who wanted to give her daughter the life that she didn't have. Jessica had spent time in foster care growing up. And like some of the challenges we've spoken about uh, in these communities, her parents struggled from intergenerational trauma and substance abuse issues. In late August 2018, she dropped her one-year-old daughter off at her grandmother's house to spend some time with her. Her grandma recounts that she gave her the biggest hug before she left like she always did. It sounds like my grandma's. And she was last seen leaving the Mountain View Motel, which was a local motel in Smithers just off of Highway 16 later that day. And remember that Smithers is the same town we talked about in the last episode. So a couple days passed um, and her family starts to worry. Her family actually officially reports her as missing on September 3rd. And once again, in the familiar story we, we hear all too often, family and friends say that the RCMP, which is the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, were slow to react in creating a search party to find Jessica. And like, why is this always the case? Like, she was such a young person. I mean, only 18 and she had a daughter. I would be so distraught as a family member if I knew that the police weren't doing everything in their power to bring my daughter home. And something we talked about in the last episode is the fact that the RCMP had to know how dangerous it could be for girls and young women along Highway 16. Yeah, exactly. And then we also talked about the task force that they created. So you would think that they would take this just a lot more seriously than they did. But... Her family did what I think most families would do in this situation. So they created their own search party. 
So Jessica's family and friends started searching up and down the Highway of Tears near Smithers, and their search wasn't in vain. Yep, so just a couple weeks into their searching, the family actually finds Jessica. Unfortunately, she was found dead in a desolated area off the Highway of Tears. It was actually Jessica's aunt, so Jackie's mother, who was the cousin we mentioned earlier, that found her. She reported that she was drawn to a local ski hill to find Jessica. So the family actually went to the top of the ski hill, which is known as Hudson Bay Mountain, and scanned for circling birds, which I think is a really sad thing to have to do. Because if you're looking for circling birds, Brittany, like vultures, you know that they're assuming she's dead. Right. And once they were on the mountain, they actually looked over one of the embankments and spotted her body about 15 meters down below. She was actually found not far from a discarded washing machine, which is like one of the things that an article I read had pointed out. And, you know, I think that it's so rare probably for family members to actually find their loved one's bodies like that. Like usually when search parties happen, they're organized by the police and then there'll be, you know, volunteers searching the area. And so most of the time I think it's a police officer or a volunteer who finds the body. So I, I just cannot even imagine you know, being a family member and finding my loved one's body like that. Yeah, me either at all. Like, you know, was this a common dumping ground or something for it to have a washing machine there? Uh, from what I read online, I didn't see any other references to the, about the area. I'm not sure either, but her body did look suspicious to the family. I know, obviously, it's the family finding her, so they're not experts, but they described it in pretty good detail. They said her long hair was fanned over her face. She was still wearing the white tank top and flats she was wearing the day she dropped off her daughter at her grandma's house. So we can assume she must have died either that same day or soon after. So, right, right. And, and I saw also where the family also said that her tank top was pushed uh, just below her breasts, kind of like she was placed there in a rush and they didn't have the time to properly arrange her or properly cover her up. Yeah, and it's so crazy to me that her family actually found her in such a remote place, like you said. I mean, especially when I was researching and like you had mentioned, they filed the official missing persons report on September 3rd. And the RCMP didn't actually put out a news release on Jessica until three days later on September 6th. So to any law enforcement out there, please encourage your departments to take reports seriously. Like, if my tail goes missing, like, I want y'all looking for me, like, the next second. Right. And also, you know, another thing that's just crazy to me is that it's not, again, it's like it's not the police that finds her. It's her family. And so it just reminds me of so many other cases that we've covered before or, you know, especially cases that I'm thinking about in relation to indigenous people in general, how the family has to take matters into their own hands because the police is, is doing absolutely nothing to try to find Jessica. So this case is just extra heartbreaking to me. Right, but I will say that the support of the community was really astounding. I mean, at this point, it's 2018, and they know that there are women going missing along the Highway of Tears. When her body was collected to be brought back into town, folks actually gathered along the highway to show the family support and to honor the many women that have had to kind of take that same journey back, Brittany, just as Jessica had. And you can hear in this clip below kind of the drums playing along the side of the busy road with, like, uh, like huge trucks also rolling by at the same time and I think it's kind of symbolic um, you know just the relation of indigenous people and the highway of tears so we'll play this clip really quick for you guys
wow, that is just so heartbreaking to me. But also just, you know, hearing about how the community just kind of came together just shows how resilient and how beautiful our Indigenous communities can be. Not only did folks gather to welcome her home, a vigil was also held in Smithers to honor Jessica and all missing and murdered Indigenous women. More than 200 people attended and all wore red, which if you're familiar with the missing and murdered Indigenous women movement, red is the symbolic color. And so while the family is in mourning, the RCMP finally gets to work because now they have a missing persons case that has turned into yet another homicide case. Like so many of the stories we have told so far, the leads into the case turn cold quick. The RCMP did tell CBC News that they had conducted multiple searches and have issued several warrants to identify just about anyone they think could be involved in her disappearance. It has been just over two years since the death of Jessica, and details about her case and about what happened to her still remain tight-lipped by the RCMP. Her family has vowed that she would not become another cold case victim of the Highway of Tears and have repeatedly demanded action and updates from the police. Today, if you go to the top of Hudson Bay Mountain, you can see a path of dozens of flowers leading towards where Jessica was found. The view from the mountain shows trees so thick that you can't see the town below. The answers to her death lie somewhere off the highway that has claimed so many lives. If you have any information on the disappearance and death of Jessica, please contact the RCMP in British Columbia. More than 20 First Nations border the route between Prince George and Prince Rupert along the Highway of Tears. Just one year before Jessica's disappearance, Smithers had been the location for a forum for the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. And I think it's worth us exploring the topic um, of the relationship of First Nations and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Y'all, it is toxic. In most Indigenous communities in Northern British Columbia, the literal translation for police in their language is those who take us away. Wow. Yeah, and it comes from the RCMP's historical involvement in Canada's infamous residential school system where Indigenous children were taken from their parents and communities. The Human Rights Watch report also titled those who take us away had a powerful opening quote the police were not perceived as a source for help but rather as an authority figure who takes members of the community away from the reserve or makes arrests for wrongdoing and when reading through the different cases in the report and the instances of police brutality it's easy to see how for decades an environment could be created in which vulnerable women and girls could be targeted and on top of that, the report found that British Columbia has the highest rate of unsolved murders involving Indigenous women and girls. Listen, British Columbia, y'all need to do better. As we might have mentioned, there have been several meetings held by leaders in the communities along Highway 16. The Highway of Tears Symposium Recommendations Report that was published in 2006 provided several short and long-term goals of the community. And one of the main long-term goals was to actually tackle the cause of so many young folks relying on the highway. Groups are actively investing in ideas to tackle First Nation intergenerational poverty and reduce the need for poverty-related transportation, such as hitchhiking. Um, the group has also worked to increase First Nations youth recreation and social activities in each community to kind of help prevent young folks from needing to travel from one town to the next for the nearest kind of recreation or social activity. So just having more stuff to do in each community for young folks. And Brittany, there are so many other tactics in their 
quote-unquote victim prevention plan, but I can't help but think that there shouldn't be a need for a victim prevention plan in the first place like that. Just that phrase victim prevention is so sad to me. Yeah, and to me it just reminds me of like um, even thinking about how with rapes people always tend to blame the victim or they focus Mm -hmm. on teaching their daughters how to prevent rapes rather than teaching their sons how not to rape. And so you know, it would just be great if people could just stop killing indigenous people. And, you know, what about focusing on the people who tend to be perpetrators of this violence? Like, I think that would be a better solution than focusing on victims because they're literally doing nothing wrong and they don't deserve what happens to them. But, you know, I could get on that soapbox all day and I won't do that. So the council also recommended creating emergency readiness and response teams, which included creating new protocol procedures with the RCMP. And lastly, the report suggested the creation of more family counseling and support for victims' families. The report is full of details and recommendations and lists many of the victims from the Highway of Tears. Here is a clip from Mary Teague, the executive director of Carrier Sikani Family Services, describing what led to the report created by her office in conjunction with other local organizations and First Nations. Ayla went missing. I was gonna, I just said, fuck this, this is enough, this is enough. This is ridiculous. I think really then is when I really started to say, okay, you know, we got to do something. It's no longer good just to have a rally because people aren't listening anyways, right? So what, what do we need to do? When we are asking for the National Inquiry, the question that begs to be answered is, why hasn't anything been done? We, we, we understand that this is an issue. Stephen Harper says it's not on his radar right now, and that is an Aboriginal issue, for heaven's sakes. That's the leader of Canada. That's systemic racism right there. To say, oh, it's an Aboriginal issue. It doesn't affect us. Well, if it did affect white women living in Ottawa, do you think that we'd be having a discussion? If there should be a national inquiry, of course it would be an inquiry. It's not an Aboriginal issue. It's a Canadian issue. Yeah. And every Canadian citizen should be up in arms. There's also represents the relationship that we have with the RCMP and the the lack of trust. It is absolutely different if you imagine, oh my, what if it was my sister? What if it was my daughter, granddaughter that went missing? What would you do? And what would you expect the government to do? And what would you expect the RCMP to do? I think that it's great that much of the report is focused on victims and their families. But like you said, it's like, can we actually get to the root cause and like figure out who's actually the perpetrators and who is killing these women? I mean, there have been several theories of one or more serial killers, of pimps, of drug lords, all involved with some or one or none of the murders. It just depends on who you talk to. And I feel like we could devote, like I said, another entire episode or just a whole other podcast and looking to just the theories alone like not even talking about the victims just like the the theories of who is actually kind of stalking these folks along highway 16 so yeah we could honestly do a whole separate podcast on the highway of tears for each victim and we mentioned that the rcmp developed a task force called epana in the mid-2000s but over the years their budget has continued to decrease because any of the theories they have about the murders or disappearances have rarely panned out And that's so scary to me that you could have dozens of people devoted to the crimes in one area. And it's not even like it's a hugely populated area and just not have any major breakthroughs. Yes, like what are y'all doing? And and there are even people continuing to privately look into the cases. So Ray Mahalko is a former RCMP and a current private detective living in Vancouver. He travels every free weekend he has up to the Highway of Tears and looks into the cases himself. 
He has a working relationship with several family members of some of the girls who have disappeared. And here is Ray describing the area. I remember once counting the number of side roads that a, a, a killer could drive off to dispose of a body in an hour. And there were, you know, a hundred and or more. It'd be very easy to, to dispose of somebody and, and very difficult to find them. It's a perfect place to go missing forever. Well, I think it's really admirable of him. Um, like I was actually reading an article about Ray where it said that the RCMP actually has sent him several cease and desist letters to stop his investigation. So like, I feel like if I was Ray, I would probably be really wary. And he also, in all of the videos I was watching of him, he does a lot of this work alone. So I feel like if it is the work of someone, you know, who's obviously really good at getting away with crime, I would be really worried because he doesn't have the badge to protect him. Like he's doing this as a private citizen. Oh my god, I, yeah, I wonder why they sent him that letter, but like, clearly the RCMP needs help, so why would they, you know, try to push somebody away who's trying to offer their free services? That's just kind of sketchy to me. Yeah, I don't know, but clearly, yeah, like you said, they could use all the help they can get. Yeah, and so another controversial thing that happened recently around the Highway of Tears was the release of the new ABC series Big Sky. It premiered in fall of 2020 and centers around the search for two white girls who are kidnapped while driving across Montana. I haven't seen the show yet, though. Um, Chelsea, have you watched it? No, I've been too busy binging The Office before it leaves Netflix, which it, it already did last week. <laughs> Yeah, oh my god, I was so sad about that. Uh, but the show, you know, as we mentioned, is set in Montana, but filmed in the neighboring British Columbia. And although we have not covered a case in Montana yet, the epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women in the state is appalling and just as much of a crisis as it is in anywhere in the U.S. or Canada. I mean, we are talking about a state where 26% of the missing persons that are reported are indigenous, even though indigenous people only make up about 7% of the Montana population. And so several indigenous groups released a joint statement to the president of ABC and the show's creator saying that the show is at best cultural insensitivity and at worst appropriation due to it being set in an area with a disproportionately high rate of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and yet not having any kind of tribal representation in the show. The statement goes on to criticize the show for whitewashing what has become a largely silent epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls in North America. Tom Rogers, who is an activist representing the Global Indigenous Council, also wrote an open letter expressing his concerns. And so apparently the creator of the show, David Kelly, responded to him through his agent in a two-line email saying, tell him we do acknowledge it in the show. It just hasn't aired yet. He misspelled my name. Tom Rogers never contacted me prior to the press release, so never let the facts get in the way of a good press release, I guess. So once again, in response to that, the tribal associations responded with yet another letter released in British Columbia in the Vancouver Sun, saying David Kelly appears to be concerned that indigenous leaders spelled his name wrong, whereas those indigenous leaders are concerned about raising awareness to stop this existential threat to indigenous communities, namely the abduction, sex trafficking, and murder of the life givers. The escalating human rights crisis now categorized as murdered and missing indigenous women and girls. And yeah, David Kelly, I'm sorry, but you just, like, how could that be the biggest concern is that someone spelled your name wrong when 
there's literally people writing you letters about dozens of missing and murdered women and that's your biggest concern yeah to me that doesn't make any sense and also you know just just thinking about this issue again i think i heard somebody call this this is like appropriation of trauma like they're appropriating a trauma that is very commonly experienced by indigenous people and then kind of allocating that to white people for the purposes of creating an entertaining television show you know, without offering the representation that indigenous people definitely deserve surrounding this issue. And so I'm just getting like superheated even thinking about this right now. Right. And I think it's just another example where our lives are continually dismissed. We have generations of women missing from our communities. And when we try to raise awareness, it's ignored or overlooked. But finally, last month on December 1st, ABC released a statement saying our eyes have been open to the outsized number of Native American indigenous women who go missing and are murdered each year. A sad and shocking fact. We're grateful for this education and are working with indigenous groups to help bring attention to this important issue. And they say they're going to release a PSA at the end of one of the Big Sky episodes this month, um, which is January, addressing the epidemic. And they say that they've hired an indigenous actress. So we'll see to have a recurring role in a new plot line that they've added since then. So we'll see like if it's janky or not, like them kind of last minute adding in a plot line. Yeah. Um, I feel like yeah, I feel like it shouldn't take this much work, though, to get folks to just like think about how they're representing all people, especially in today's climate, which you mentioned earlier. Yeah. And also, you know, I had, I had been considering watching the show actually for a few weeks. But then when I, I Googled it to find out the ratings and I saw this complaint by indigenous leaders, that's actually the reason why I have not watched the show. And I probably will not watch it unless they do make the changes that they're claiming to make. But which again, you know, I don't hold out much faith that they're going to actually do what they say. But I mean, we are talking about a Disney owned company and we both know the way they tell the story of Pocahontas is completely garbage. Right. Like the song Savages, Savages, Barely Even Human. It like still rings in my head from childhood. And I didn't even know that. Like as a kid, I didn't even connect that they were talking about my ancestors in that kind of way. Right. Um, and I'll definitely be on the lookout also for like the show and to see if they actually do put the disclaimer in there this month. And if they actually do introduce a new indigenous actress, because I think that really would be great. Um, and at least some kind of small wind. But if any of our listeners are watching the show, please please let us know when you see it and just your thoughts about the show in general. Um, we hope you have learned a bit more about the Highway of Tears over the last two weeks and some of the efforts to solve so many of the murders and disappearances of our sisters. And we hope to cover more of their cases in the future. If you have any information about any of the cases we've talked about the past two weeks, please contact the RCMP. Maybe they'll finally, you know, maybe your tip is the one to just solve it all but once again thank you for joining us for the 10th episode of the red justice project we've so enjoyed bringing you these stories